Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the formula of Concord. Now, we left off on page 512. We are on the article of original sin. Last week, we covered the historical background and context, and we got a little ways into the article itself. One thing that I realized after the fact is that my introduction may have confused you uh, inadvertently as to the first two articles. So if you begin on page 511 with me and look, that first article, that is the position of Flacius, the position that the article uh, on original sin is going to be against. Then if you flip over to page 512, you see paragraph 2, that is the position of the formula of Concord. So it'll behoove us to read that very quickly. Now, what gets introduced, so, so far we have one error, and then we have the truth, and what gets introduced is another error. You see how that works? So we're going to have fallacious, uh, fallacious and uh, Manichaeanism on the one hand. We're going to have the truth and the right biblical position right down the middle. Then on the other side, we're going to have uh, Pelagianism or uh, the error of the Philippus, Philip Melanchthon. Make sense? Okay, so let's just look at paragraph two so we have our heads uh, screwed on straight as we go into the session this morning. The other side taught in opposition that original sin is not truly the nature, substance, or essence of mankind, that is, a person's body or soul, which even now, since the fall, are and remain God's creation and creatures in us. But original sin is something in mankind's nature, body, and soul, and in all a person's powers. It is a horrible, deep, inexpressible corruption of mankind's nature and powers. So mankind lacks the righteousness in which he was originally created. In spiritual things, he is dead to good and perverted to all evil. So keep those two phrases in mind. We're going to do some biblical work and see why the confessors are making this argument and it will take a look at at least one of the texts that they ground this argument on. Dead to good and perverted to all evil. Continuing, because of this corruption and inborn sin which dwells in man's nature, all actual sins flow forth from the heart. You remember the distinction last week between uh, original sin and actual sins. So Jesus says that all manner of evil and wickedness flow forth from the heart. Or... A bad tree can only produce bad fruit. So even if a bad tree produced no bad fruit, is it still a bad tree? Yes, of course. That's original sin. All right. So, therefore, a distinction must be maintained between the nature and essence of the corrupt person and his body and soul, which are God's creation and creatures in us, even since the fall. These are distinct from original sin, which is the devil's work, by which the nature has become corrupt. Okay, so far so good. Now, we left off next, uh, last week, I should say, on um, paragraph 5 and 6, having just completed those. And I want to look at that again today so we can launch off into Ephesians 2. First, it is true that Christians should regard and recognize the actual transgression of God's commandments as sin. But sin is also that horrible, dreadful, hereditary sickness 
by which the entire human nature is corrupted. This should, above all things, be regarded and recognized as sin indeed. Yes, it is the chief sin, which is a root and and fountainhead of all actual (laughs) sins. By Dr. Luther, it is called a nature sin or person sin. He says this to show that even if a person would not think, speak, or do anything evil, which, however, is impossible in this life since the fall of our first parents, his nature and person are nevertheless sinful. Before God, they are thoroughly and utterly infected and corrupted by original sin, as by a spiritual leprosy. Because of this corruption and because of the fall of the first man, the human nature or person is accused or condemned by God's law. That's worth looking at again. Because of this corruption and because of the fall of the first man, the human nature or person is accused or condemned by God's law. What we're going to see in later articles of the Formula of Concord is that the law is, frankly, God's will. So in the garden, when Adam and Eve were in perfection, or I should say in goodness, when they were created good, before their sin, before their fall, did the law that is God's will accuse them? No, it didn't. Likewise, we can think of the saints in heaven right now who have died, that is, their flesh and old Adam and old nature has died, and they themselves are holy in heaven. Does the law accuse them? No. Then we can think, too, of the saints at the end when we are raised in our bodies, when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The law is still present. The law is still God's will. That's why Luther calls it an eternal law. Does that law then accuse us? No. The law is good, and its, uh, its normal, essential function is not to accuse. But who does it accuse? Yeah, sinners. Because of this corruption, that is, because of the corruption of original sin, and because of the fall of the first man, the human nature or person is accused or condemned by God's law. By falling into, say, by falling into sin, Adam effectively invents the second use of the law. That is, his sin now causes the law to be against him and to accuse him and to point out his sin. Does that make sense? Viewed from this fundamental foundational angle, the accusation of the law is not primary but secondary. Now, the reason why we Lutherans refer to it as primary, this second use, this accusing use of the law, is from our perspective as fallen human beings, it is in fact the chief use and purpose of the law. The second use, we even call it the theological use of the law. But we have to be able to think with the confessors more deeply about these things or else we're going to get some things skewed. Because as we see today in modern quote-unquote Lutheran theologians is as soon as they let go of the law and let go of the law as God's will, they let go of the framework within which the atonement is made complete. Right? Namely, that Christ blots out our iniquities according to the law and by his active obedience and perfect righteousness fulfills our righteousness. But if you've dismissed that all as the legal scheme, 
then you have no need for it. You see, so what looks like a harmless little difference of, oh, they just don't emphasize the third use of the law, or they emphasize only the second use of the law, which is good and proper, now you see where they depart from the formula of concord and where that small departure in regard to the law turns out to be so big, they deny the work of Christ, both his passive and active obedience on our behalf. Make sense? So a little error works its way into a great big error. And it's worth pointing out here that that is precisely the position of the formula. It is only because of this corruption and because of the fall of the first man that the human nature or person is accused or condemned by God's law. The confessors continue, So we are by nature the children of wrath, death, and damnation, unless we are delivered from them by Christ's merit. Now you see there, Christ's merit which again, in that same system that sees the law as only accusing and always accusing, and thus not eternal, there's also a denial of merit, because merit would be part of the legal scheme. But here you see plainly how the confessors view it. We have been delivered from wrath, death, and damnation precisely by Christ's merit. Okay. Now, where do we get this from the scriptures? Let's look at Ephesians 2 for just a moment. There's a number of places we can go, but the language, dead to good, the language, children of wrath, these phrases come right out of Ephesians chapter 2. So, if you haven't got your Bible, your Lutheran study Bible, of course, with your uh, Concordia of the Lutheran Confession, so we're getting in shape while we're learning theology, and... Um, We'll take our time going through this, especially this early foundational uh, article on original sin, for two reasons, chapter 2. For two reasons. You know, in the first place, because if we don't understand the sickness, we're not going to understand the Savior. We're not going to understand the one who comes only for the sick, particularly if we understand our sickness superficially then we're going to understand the healer, the physician, superficially, you see. Okay, and the flip side of that we mentioned last week is viewing uh, original sin as simply one side of the coin of which the other side is justification by grace through faith apart from works on account of Christ only, okay. What we are most familiar with as the center of the Reformation, the flip side of that is original sin. Because if you don't have original sin, then grace alone doesn't make a lick of sense. Or to put it another way, if you have grace alone, you have original sin. If you have original sin, you have grace alone. Make sense? All right. So let's look at Ephesians 2 and see how the biblical language has been uh, taken, understood, co-opted by the confessors. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. What good can we do? Nothing. What, what aid can we give God? None. As we're going to look at in just a minute, Pelagianism says you can do it all by yourself. No, says St. Paul, you're dead. You can't do anything. Semi-Pelagian says um, you're only mostly dead. You can do part of it, and then God meets you the other half. No, St. Paul says, you are dead. 
Synergism just flips semi-Pelagianism and says, well, God has to start it, but then you get to finish it. No, says St. Paul, you are dead. Okay. But as important as that foundation is, and especially for this article on original sin, notice the direction that Paul's moving even in this very first verse. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. A big change has happened if you are a Christian. A big change. So, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That unholy spirit, of course, is Satan. And there you see the language of uh, sons of disobedience, which is about to become children of wrath. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That is, we as Christians now, who once were not, once lived with the sons of disobedience in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see what's corrupted here, what's dead. Not just the body, but also the mind, the whole thing. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, Paul has actually rhetorically tightened this a little bit more. Not only are we dead, but we are, at, which, which infers a sort of passivity. You know, a dead body doesn't do anything, it just lays there. But Paul has gone on to say that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That is, insofar as we did live, so to speak, it was contrary to God. So it's not merely that we are dead, but it's also that we are enemies of God, as Paul says expressly in Romans. But I simply point out that you can see that here as well. Children of wrath, that's what we were like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now that's a huge transition and change and foundational to understanding where we're going to go in this first article from original sin, the second article, free will, the first half of that article being namely, you don't have any when it comes to theological matters, and the second half of that article on free will, until Christ has made you alive. Now we can talk about a will that is freed. And that's precisely the language that the formula uses. Now that ought to cause us 21st century Lutherans to pause for just a moment because we are so used to this theology only, bondage of the will. And then here's the ham-fisted move. Bondage of the will simply means that Christians' wills are bound, that we are effectively no different than the unbaptized. Nonsense, says the second article of the formula. 
There is a great difference between the unbaptized and the baptized. And more important than the formula making that point, God's Word here is making that point. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, don't you love that beautiful plural? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to get us off track, but I have to, I guess, because it's God's word and it's worth getting off track. You have the resurrection of Jesus, made us alive together with him, and so we too are raised with him. Out of this being dead in our trespasses, we are now living and raised with him. But then you also have the move to the ascension, don't you? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the ascension. So that where he is, we are also. Or as uh, wrestling coaches would put it, where the head goes, the body follows. And we are the body of Christ. It's a fascinating idea to think about. We can't perceive ourselves objectively. It seems very difficult for any creature to do so. You've seen a dog chasing its tail. I half wonder that in our inability to perceive ourselves objectively, if from God's vantage point or even from a heavenly vantage point, we wouldn't look very different than we do to ourselves. In fact, already alive in Christ Jesus with God the Father being raised up into the heavenly places with him. Even now, even present tense. We don't experience that, we don't see that, we don't feel that, but should we therefore doubt it? No, we shouldn't doubt it. We live not by sight, but by faith. And faith says that he has raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Namely, that's how we miserable sinners get up there without being obliterated. We are in Christ Jesus. Or in the language of Revelation, um, we have our robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And here's the purpose clause. This is just fantastic. If I had to choose one thing to preach, well, okay, fine, it would be Christ crucified and risen. But if I had two things to preach on, this would be the other thing. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, let the plural sink in, even if you don't really like it. But the other part of that is we see that heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, or what we perceive to be the end of the story, isn't an end at all. The scriptures itself deny that. Nor is it a static sort of reality, like you get into heaven and, okay, that's it, I know all I'm going to know. Uh, no. I've experienced all that God has for me to experience. No. Well, it's, I'll receive all that is heaven and then that'll be it, my cup will be full, and I'll just sit in stasis for the rest of eternity. Look again what God's word says. This is such a beautiful word and promise. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's what we're going to be experiencing for, for all eternity. 
Grace upon grace, dynamic, new, ever-changing, mystery upon mystery, joy upon joy, ever, ever deeper. God is infinite and we are finite and we have been made for him. He can pour himself out into us infinitely for all eternity and we can ever grow and ever learn and ever gain and never be exhausted, never reach a point of stasis, never be at a place of boredom. That's what this is all for, you see. Now, let's continue a little further just to get the full sense of the text, then we'll get back to the book of Concord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, verse 8, and this is not your doing, neither the grace nor the faith. (laughs) It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Now, one thing to point out, what has he just done? He's just done original sin, and now what's he doing? Grace. You see how those go hand in hand? You were dead in your trespasses, worse than dead. You were sons of disobedience and contrary to God. Now you who are dead, he has raised. And you who are against God, he has now made you for God. And you who are completely damned in original sin and incapable of saving yourselves, not by works, he has now justified and made alive and saved by grace and grace alone. So you see what Paul is doing. They're two sides of the same coin. One goes with the other. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, now the rubber hits the road in terms of what does that mean for us in this life? It means that, well, certainly as Luther says, God doesn't need our good works. That's most certainly true. But God nonetheless wants our good works and in fact prepares them beforehand that we should walk in them. In that respect, even our good works are a gift. Everything's a gift. Even if it involves our cooperation, as we'll get into, it's still nonetheless a gift. All right, that's Ephesians 2. So now you can see how that text in Scripture resonates with the foundation that the Reformers are laying when they're talking about original sin and then the change that occurs after original sin, which we'll hear more about. Before we do... Uh, let's pause and see if you have any questions or anything that I made unclear. <laughs> or any thoughts. Thoughts are good too. There's one. I've thought this analogy in the past, the uh, trajectory of rockets from the Earth to try to reach the moon. If you are a few degrees off, in your calculations when you leave the earth, it doesn't look like that big a deal. But the further you project out, the wider the discrepancy becomes. Oh, yeah, very good point. Very good point. Let's uh, go on to the second paragraph on page 512. Second, The following is also clear and true as Article 19 of the Augsburg Confession teaches. Now, what's Article 19? It's titled, The Cause of Sin. You'll see why they bring that up now. Second, the following is also clear and true as Article 19 of the Augsburg Confession teaches. God is not a creator or author or cause of sin. As even though we're dead in our trespasses... And we as individuals are born into that death in trespasses. Nonetheless, God is not a creator, author, 
or cause of sin. Now that's one of those lines, that's one of those theological principles you want to grab hold of and not let go of no matter what. Right? Essential to whatever your theology is doing, it can't be making God a creator, author, or cause of sin. Continuing, by the instigation of the devil through one man, sin, which is the devil's work, has entered the world. Romans 5.12 and 1 John 3.7. Even today, in this corruption, God does not create and make sin in us. Original sin is multiplied from sinful seed through fleshly conception and birth from father and mother. God, at the present day, still creates and makes the human nature in people. So, you see what the confessors are doing then. While we are entirely corrupt, we are not entirely corrupt in such a way that God creates us entirely corrupt. He creates us, even today, in our essence and substance to be good, that is, human beings, who are then corrupted by the inherent corruption passed down genetically, if you will, uh, by conception, and are thus corrupted, the cause being the devil and Adam. And then in our actual sins, the cause being us individually. Okay, third paragraph. Third, reason doesn't know and understand what this hereditary evil is. Now you remember from Ephesians where it said it was even a corruption of the mind. So the fallen human being, and we still have old Adam in us, we still have that fallen nature in us, twists reason itself so that reason cannot be trusted, not as an absolute. It's simply a tool, and a tool that the scriptures say and the confessions say is a biased tool, you see. So we have to have a different authority than reason, namely scripture, the point being, though, here, rather remarkably, that reason doesn't know and understand what this hereditary evil is. So you go talking to someone on the street, and to a man, to a woman, they're going to tell you, I'm a good person. And if they're honest, they're going to say, but I've made some mistakes. No concept of original sin. And if you told them, no, if you have made mistakes, and made mistakes against God's law, then we would define that as evil fruit. And or bad fruit, and what doesn't produce bad fruit? A good tree. So you are most certainly not a good tree. You are most certainly not a good person who happens to sin. Or as Jesus puts it, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. We might put it another way and say, I'm not a... Whoa, was that me? I'm not a sinner... Yes, it was. No? Wave my arms again? Brace yourselves. <laughs> Was my beard getting after it? I don't know. Uh, sorry. Nope. Okay. All right. Aliens. So, um, where were we at? Where were we at? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we can say this, too. It's not, it's, we don't, a fallen man, when he's being his most pious, reasons like this. Well, I've sinned a few times. And therefore, I guess I'm a sinner. 
But scripture everywhere puts it the exact opposite and contradicts human reason and says, no, you're a sinner through and through and therefore you sin. As Jesus says, am I in trouble? Okay. As Jesus says, <laughs> never know. Yeah, <laughs> looking for a big hook. Um, as Jesus says, it's not what comes from the outside that defiles you, but rather it's what comes from inside of you that defiles you, you see? All right. So, at any rate, this is a stunning thing, and this is the reason, this is like the reason why people reject a savior, and why everywhere Lutheran theology says the law has to go first, because people by nature, by reason, don't understand their sinful condition. The law has to come and say, you're sick. And only when a person says, aha, I'm sick, are they even going to hear the words of Jesus, the words of absolution, the words of the great physician and healer of our souls, you see. Insofar as they're still under the delusion that they're well, what need do they have of a savior? So Jesus says, I came only for the sick. Now, that second paragraph in, or excuse me, second line in paragraph three, as the small cult articles say, it must be learned and believed from the revelation of Scripture. The Apology briefly summarized this under the following main points. A. Because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, hereditary evil is the guilt by which we are all in God's displeasure and are by nature children of wrath, as the Apostle shows. B. Second, original sin is a complete absence or lack of of the created state of hereditary righteousness in paradise, or of God's image. Controversial point. We have actually lost God's image, properly speaking. We no longer bear God's image, properly speaking. That is, speaking as accurately as we can. Sin is a complete absence of God's image. That's the grammar there according to which man was originally created in truth, holiness, and righteousness. At the same time, original sin is an inability and unfitness for all the things of God. Or as the Latin word reads, the definition of original sin takes away from the unrenewed nature the gifts, the power, and all activity for beginning and accomplishing anything in spiritual things. Now look there too, there's the distinction between being dead and being alive, being unbaptized and being baptized, because a baptized person has renewed nature and thus gifts, power, uh, activity for beginning and accomplishing spiritual things, but not by nature. By nature and in the state of original sin, as such or only, then all things are removed, including the gifts, the power, and all activity for beginning and accomplishing any thing in spiritual things, which is why Isaiah says it very plainly, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, right? C, original sin in human nature is not just this entire absence of all good in spiritual divine things. Original sin is more than the lost image of God in mankind. It is at the same time also a deep, wicked, horrible, fathomless, mysterious, and unspeakable corruption of the entire human nature and all its powers. It is especially a corruption of the soul's highest, chief powers in the understanding, heart, and will. 
Now, isn't that interesting? Because decision theology today sort of presents itself as God has done everything and all you have to do is this little tiny thing, just say yes. God has written a check for uh, $1 billion and all you have to do is sign your name to it. Just assent, just pray the sinner's prayer, just decide. The problem is that you can't. And the Not only is that the problem, but the way it's couched is dishonest, isn't it? Because they make it out to be a little thing, but what in fact is an act of the will? The greatest of all things. That's the highest of our powers and the greatest of our abilities. Before you do anything, you decide to do something. And once you decide, if a king decides he's going to go to war, think of all that unfolds. So that little act of a will isn't a little act at all. And that's the point that the confessions are making here. It is especially a corruption of the soul's highest chief powers in the understanding, heart, and will. So now, since the fall, a person inherits an inborn wicked disposition and inward impurity of heart, an evil lust and tendency... We all, by disposition and nature, inherit from Adam a heart, feeling, and thought that are, according to their highest powers, and the light of reason, naturally inclined and disposed directly against God and His chief commandments. Think there the first table. You know, think, of, think of a righteous pagan, a righteous unbeliever who's upstanding and a good citizen and as civilly righteous as you can get, what chiefly do they lack? The first, second, and third commandment, the first table of the law, which is the greatest. It's our entire orientation toward God. Okay. So they are now inclined and disposed directly against God and his chief commandments. Yes, they are hostile toward God, especially in divine and spiritual things. For in other respects, regarding natural outward things that are subject to reason, a person still has power, ability, and to a certain degree, understanding, although very much weakened. Okay, so when we're talking about natural outward things, subject to reason, we kind of get it. You can kind of be law-abiding in the human sense, in the civil sense, but not in the theological sense, not before the judgment seat of God. Very top of page 17, all of this, however, has been so infected and contaminated by original sin that it is of no use before God. D, the punishment and penalty of original sin, which God has imposed upon Adam's children and upon original sin, are death, eternal damnation, and also other bodily, spiritual, temporal, eternal miseries. These include the devil's tyranny and dominion. That's a punishment in itself. So human nature is subject to the devil's kingdom and has been surrendered to his power. This is uh, where the bondage of the will kicks in. It's not as if we're neutral people and the devil made me do it. It's not as if we're good people and the devil made me do it. The bondage of the will precisely is this, that I will to do what the devil wills me to do. There's no coercion involved. There's no forcing. When I am under the devil's power as a fallen human being, the devil says, hey, that looks like fun, doesn't it? And I say, oh yeah. That's the bondage of the will. I can't say, oh no, 
Because why? I don't want to. My will is precisely bound to itself. I use an example like this. Those of you in bondage of the will are tired of it. But if you, uh, when I went to the University of Colorado for a psychology class, it was great. We studied lizards. Helped me to really understand human beings, actually. Um, but a lizard, in any given circumstance, can, they're not very complex, can only do A, B, or C. It can't stand up and talk. It can't reason its way into E. It can only do these four things, A, B, C, or D. It cannot escape its lizardness. It cannot escape its nature. The same thing is true for us as sinners. At fallen human beings, we look and we say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. Yes, but whatever you want is precisely sin. Self-centered, self-interested. We can't escape our sinfulness. We can't escape our fallen will, just as a lizard can't escape his lizardness, you see. And that is precisely what's meant by bondage of the will. So, we are under the devil's tyranny and dominion. And continuing, so human nature is subject to the devil's kingdom and has been surrendered to his power. It is held captive under his sway, who stupefies, boy, that's evident today, isn't it? And leads astray many a great learned person in the world through dreadful error, heresy, and other blindness, and otherwise rushes people into all sorts of crime. E, fifth, this hereditary evil is so great and horrible, here's the key, Here's what we've been driving to the whole time. That only for the sake of the Lord Christ can it be covered and forgiven before God in those baptized and believing. Only for the sake of the Lord Christ. So what's the point in studying and learning how far fallen we are by nature so that we can see and know how fully we need Christ? And we can turn to him in every need. And in fact, the more deeply the Bible shows us our corruption, the more accurately it reflects the sinfulness of our thoughts and words and deeds, the more it drives us to Christ, the more it causes us to say, God, have mercy. And that's not an abstraction. That means we meet Christ in divine service. In the absolution, what does he say? Upon this, your confession. I forgive you your sins. And the gospel is preached by his living word, and you come up to the altar, and you receive nothing less than the very blood of the eternal Son of God upon your lips. That blood blots out all your iniquities, and God remembers them no more. So only for the sake of the Lord Christ can it be covered and forgiven. And it is. Let's finish out paragraph 14. Furthermore, human nature, which is perverted and corrupted by original sin, must and can be healed only by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. However, this healing is only begun in this life. So note that this healing is in fact begun. This is in fact the power of the Holy Spirit, that he works in us healing so that our will doesn't stay bound to Satan, so that original sin is counteracted by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and renewal. But then again, it's only begun in this life. So it's conducted here in great weakness. That's Romans 7. But it is conducted. It will not be perfect until the life to come. These points which have been quoted here only in a summary way are set forth more fully in the above-mentioned writings of the common confession of our Christian doctrine. 
All right, I have time for one question. If not, we can get out of this place, which feels to me like a sauna. Is it warm in here? Yeah, I was falling asleep listening to myself talk. All right, the Lord be with you.